Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Psychedelics in these transition moments, in these periods of uncertainty, they often help with courage. They often help with making the difficult decision that we know is difficult. We know it hurts, but we also know that by making that decision, our life is going to substantially improve for the better. We're going to make more money. We're going to be more happy and content. We're going to have better relationships. We know that, but the most beneficial decisions are often the most difficult decisions. And so psychedelics seem to help people with that process of making the difficult decision, having the courage to say yes and to go and explore something that may be uncertain. It's often this liminal space, right? Like the metaphor that I use is we leave the island and we're out in the, in the choppy seas and we're trying to find what's the new island. But those in-between periods, those transition periods often allow for the greatest lessons and learnings, even if they can be quite difficult and challenging. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Paul, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, this was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. So it's cool to be able to join the show and, and drop in on creativity. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I heard about you by way of your publicist who told me that you're somewhat of a uh, prominent figure in the world of psychedelics and, and microdosing. And naturally, of course, I'm interested in all of this because uh, of the things that I've seen, of course, you know, guests that we've had. Uh, we had Dylan from Mindbloom here recently and um, talked to a few others, but we haven't had anybody talk specifically about psilocybin. But before we get into all of that, um, I wanted to start asking, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did that end up having on what you ended up doing with your life and your career? So I grew up in West Michigan. And for any listeners out there who are maybe unfamiliar with, with West Michigan, it's a, it's a pretty Republican stronghold, conservative, traditional values. Um, the city Grand Rapids is, is known to be sort of a thriving small city. It used to be the center of, of the furniture empire, um, uh, because of all the, the wood that came down from Northern Michigan. So small town, traditional values. My parents were both more liberal Democrats. So progressive, um, in terms of what they valued socially, but family life was very, I would say sheltered, um, traditional, you know, 
rules were of the utmost importance and morality was often dictated by, you know, going to church on Sunday and, and following the, the sort of laws of the Bible. And when I was 16, you know, my parents sat me down after they found out that I had been smoking cannabis. They were, you know, inculcated in the, the time of just say no, you know, the war on drugs and Nixon and Nancy Reagan. And my dad looked at me, my dad's a very sweet man. We have a, we have a great relationship, but he looked at me and said, you know, I haven't been this disappointed since my brother passed away in a car accident, you know, 25 years ago. So it clearly impacted them. That then impacted me. And even when that was communicated, that level of disappointment, it, it never struck me as if I, I was doing anything wrong. There was something that was guiding me that says, okay, this is, this is not what it's made out to be. There's something, you know, more here. And so a few years after that, I, I, you know, continued to be the sort of natural rebellious teenager. But never went overboard or too extreme. Always, you know, did well in school. I played, um, uh, I was an athlete. I played violin. So I had things that kept me balanced, but I was just on the edge enough to sort of, you know, have this, this slightly rebellious streak. And so 19, I'm, uh, at, at college, um, a liberal arts school in West Michigan called Hope College. My dad had worked there for 30 years and, you know, I went there to play soccer and joined a fraternity and, um, you know, was initially studying medicine. And at the age of 19, I found, um, this is my sophomore year in college, found myself some, some LSD. Uh, the same friend who introduced me to cannabis introduced me to psychedelics. And I had this just wonderful experience on like a, a pretty moderate dose of LSD, probably 200 micrograms, which is about two full hits of LSD, definitely not a microdose. And just felt connected to nature, felt like a lot of the shame and guilt that I had been raised within just sort of dropped off my shoulders. Uh, I was able to release it. And it really set me down a path of valuing the, the sort of creative force, right? Feeling compelled to pursue a mission or a craft that would provide a deep sense of meaningful fulfillment. And so my path started just, you know, I moved abroad. I taught English in Turkey for a year. I moved to Thailand where I lived for a year in Chiang Mai, building my first online business. Um, soon after that, I moved back to Michigan, re-enrolled and did some more studies, at which point I was listening to, to this podcast. This was early 2014. And eventually, found my way to Budapest. Uh, this was mid-2015. Had been microdosing LSD a couple times a week, um, experimenting, trying it out, thinking back to those early LSD experiences where for a week or two weeks after I always felt more connected. I, you know, meditated more often. I made better decisions about the food that I ate. And because I was on a personal development kick for, for much of my twenties, I was like, maybe microdosing would be a great tool just to help me further develop uh, as, as a human being. And so I started microdosing a couple times a week for like six months and just found it to be really helpful. It helped me to significantly cut out alcohol and decrease the amount of alcohol that I was drinking. It also helped me to just sort of minimize creative resistance. I could sit down, I could write, I could brainstorm, I could get right into things without having to feel like I had a, uh, you know, a block in the way. And it was such an impactful experience that in, in 2015, I started third wave about eight years ago now. And just, you know, for the last eight years, I've been professionally involved in the psychedelic space. You know, we've educated probably 30 million people at this point in time through our educational resources. Uh, I started a retreat center in the Netherlands, a legal psilocybin retreat center. We did high-dose psilocybin retreats for over a 1,000 people. And then my most recent project is training coaches, practitioners, facilitators. So a lot of executive coaches, holistic health coaches, life and relationship coaches, 
you know, are looking at psychedelics as the cutting edge of, of any um, sort of coaching toolbox. And so really training people on how to, how to leverage psychedelics for neuroplasticity, creativity, leadership development, uh, better, better behavioral decisions. That's, those are all things that I really love and, and care about. Well, we'll get into all of those. Uh, I want to go back to this moment with your dad. Like cannabis doesn't seem like something that would be so serious. Was it because his his uh, brother died in a car accident due to smoking cannabis? Like, why was the reaction what it was? You know, my 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 mom's sister had had her, uh, according to my mom, her life ruined by certain drugs. Let's say cocaine and cannabis and. Um, you know, other drugs that my mom sort of blamed for her sister being on welfare and, and living in a, you know, um, mobile home and like, you know, having a lot of rocky, unstable relationships. So I think it was actually my mom's personal life had been more impacted in the, by drugs than my dad. But my dad was, you know, um, a kid who grew up in a small town in, in, in Michigan. He went to seminary for a year. He's still to this day, never been drunk. He's still to this day, never smoked weed. He has done mushrooms. We did mushrooms together a few years ago, which was interesting and sort of a, an interesting come around. But I think he was just so, you know, naive, maybe and ignorant about it that he thought, Oh, cannabis is this really evil tool. And, you know, probably influenced in large part by my mom and how she felt about it. Yeah. Well, you know, growing up in an environment like that, uh, where you're this sort of edgy, you know, pretty progressive kid and surrounded by like all these conservative people, like what are the pros and cons? Because I feel like there probably are some pretty solid benefits that come from being raised in an environment like that as well. So the the biggest pro is is definitely a sense of individuation and and sort of uniqueness like there there was definitely a distinct sense of i'm i'm not like the others necessarily when i was in my early adolescence 11 12 13 that was very difficult to accept i think and confront because you know the natural impulse is to want to have peer groups and get along with folks and you know, but it just always, I always felt like a little bit of a fish out, a fish out of water. And I learned how to flow with it and adapt to it throughout high school and college. I learned how to sort of play that game, but I'm, I wouldn't say I'm particularly, you know, close friends with anyone still from my, my childhood. A lot of my close friends I've met over the last eight or nine years. And I always, you know, when, when people, um, when people will find out that I'm from West Michigan and that I'm now doing this professional work in psychedelics and, you know, um, just have really sort of lived on that. They, they're always shocked and surprised those who know about West Michigan or maybe from West Michigan because it is, it is such a small town place. So really getting to paint my own story. That was a huge pro and feeling like there's like I can, I can do my own thing here and individuate. And that I think really came from. You know, my my parents, I had two sisters as well, like typical suburban, Midwestern family home life, middle class. And I think my parents just, there was always a lot of love. I had a really healthy and safe and nurturing home environment. Um, there was a ton of stability. You know, my parents still live in the same house that I, you know, moved into when I was three months old for, so they've lived in the same house for 35 years now. Um so that I think then allowed for, oh, I, it, it, I didn't have like a lot of major trauma to sort of, um, throw off with psychedelics to heal from. And so as soon as I got into psychedelic work, it was really like, you can do whatever the fuck you want. 
Mm-hmm. And so that I think provided a real sort of stable nurturing anchor for, you know, me to go and travel to 80 countries and, you know, put myself at legal risk to some degree with, you know, working professionally in psychedelics for, for eight years now. And, you know, I just never felt, um, like overly at risk or, or like I was going to get in trouble, which is, which is ironic because my parents sort of, um, did that themselves. You know, um, when I was when I was growing up. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I think that before we get into your work, you got to give us sort of a history of drug policy. Uh, you know, lesson here in the United States, mainly because you alluded to the just say no era. So, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because I, you know, 
remember when my parents found out I smoked weed for the first time, it was like this very amusing moment. They were like, do you smoke weed? And I was like, what do you guys think? And I went to Berkeley. They're like, we're not idiots. Oh, you went we're to Berkeley, your, yeah. Yeah, they're like, we, we're your parents. We found your drug paraphernalia before. And I'm like, great. You should know your precious daughter, who was a chief anesthesiology resident at Yale, also got stoned in high school every now and then. Um, but it was kind of surprising because at that point, it had become legal in California. And so they were a bit more open to it. And so I got them to actually do it. It didn't go well, unfortunately. My parents, one of my friends were like, wait, you gave, you overdosed your parents? I'm like, not on purpose because they didn't want to smoke. And I was like, okay, well, let's just do edibles. And the edibles were pretty strong. And my friend's like, wait, you gave them how, the same how dose? Strong? How strong? I don't remember. They were these green okay. hornet like maybe edibles. maybe 10 milligrams or something. Yeah, like maybe something like that. They were these like green hornet edibles. And, uh, you know, I, I remember the first time I got them from the store, the guy says, cut this square in fourths, take a fourth and you'll be good. And I remember, you know, taking it. And I was like, damn, this is some good weed. But I was watching <laughs> Parenthood and I was like in tears and I'm just like, man, this is good. Um, and, you know, I told I, I only gave them a fourth of that square, but like it didn't go all that well. Like my mom got sick and it was just, you know, bad. Oh, no. But all that oh, being no. said, um, I think that, you know, what's important, more important here is really kind of looking at sort of the narrative that we have constructed in America around drugs in particular you probably have to take us back before just say no, because I know there's like a history of psychedelic research and that gets cut off at some point in the 70s. So walk us, give us a history lesson here first. Thank you for that invitation. History is what I studied in undergrad. It's even the the context and the rooting of third wave, right? The third wave of psychedelics, the first wave being the indigenous, indigenous and ancient use of psychedelics, the second wave being the counterculture in the 50s and 60s, and the third wave being now, how do we find the middle way between ancient ceremony, ritual, indigenous wisdom, and precision medicine, science, um, novel substances? Uh, that really is the, the third way of exploring the, the middle path between those two. So, you know, the, the best history lesson starts in, in ancient Greece, where, you know, major influential thinkers like uh, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, engaged in the Eleusinian mysteries. They were part of these these greater mysteries that happened once every four years. Some only went once or twice. Others went many times. And they would drink a beverage called kukion, which is made from ergot, um, a fungus that grows on rye. And and they would have kukion as part of these, these sort of reenactments, these theatrical performances that were always a mystery. You never told anyone about it. If you told anyone about it, you'd either be dead uh, executed or um, excommunicated. So there was always a sense of uh, mystery in which it was shrouded. And of course, the, the biggest breakthrough was, you know, when people would drink this kukian, they would have this connection to the divine, this connection to God, this connection to source, something greater than, than, than what we know. Um, unfortunately, when the Christian church became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the early fourth century, they shut down all of these pagan mysteries, eradicating, you know, Western the Western canon and thought from our lineage from psychedelic plant medicines. And it didn't really come back until 1943 when Albert Hoffman, a Swiss chemist, found out that this substance that he had made, LSD-25, which he had intended for childbirth for, for women, actually had incredibly psychedelic properties. And so April 19, 1943, he, he takes a little bit of acid, 250 micrograms, which is about two and a half hits, what he thought was a little bit, which as we all know now is certainly not just a little bit. And, you know, ended up riding his bike home 
in the middle of World War II from his from his uh, office back to home, and he wrote this whole story about kind of what happened on that first acid trip, and that kicked off the second wave. You know, LSD was legal federally till 1968, I think, in California till 1966. Uh, you had a thousand clinical papers published on the efficacy of LSD in the 1950s on a range of conditions like addiction and alcoholism and depression and autism and many other things. Um, but you know, the sixties happened, the, the Vietnam war happened and the Nixon administration said, okay, we can't make the drugs these people are doing. I'm sorry. We can't make being a protester illegal, just like we can't make being black illegal. But we can make the drugs they're using illegal so we can criminalize them and throw them in jail. And so, you know, the hippies were using LSD and cannabis for the most part. So those were made illegal. The the blacks were using a lot of heroin. So that was made illegal. And we entered this sort of never before um, in the in the history of the world has this happened before where there's essentially a widespread prohibition on almost every psychoactive drug known to man besides three. Caffeine alcohol, and tobacco. And if you look at the history of why those drugs were normalized, it has to do with colonialism and slavery and, you know, the the sort of triangle trade. Uh, it has to do with industrialism and the traits and values that were prioritized for industrialism, alertness, focus, convergent thinking. Uh, and then, of course, alcohol is a central nervous depressant at e- in the evening to wind down so you can go the next day and work, 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 work. And it wasn't until the 1960s during the second wave of psychedelics that LSD comes on the scene and helps us shift from the industrial age to what Alvin Toffler, the famous futurist, called the information age, what he called the third wave. And so that information age was really catalyzed by the widespread use of LSD in Palo Alto uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, The whole computer revolution came out of that uh, early use of LSD amongst other factors. And LSD finally helped us to get back to the sense of interconnectedness. So we saw the environmental movement. We saw, um, you know, the, the sort of earth movement, which has been always a, a hallmark of a meaningful psychedelic experiences that people feel really connected to the earth and, uh, and to the environment. And so this all happens in the second wave, but of course it goes overboard, right? Like you have a lot of people doing acid. You have a lot of acid casualties. You have widespread media that went from initially being very positive to very against psychedelics because of all the harm that people were were, were witnessing with it. And um, and it wasn't until 2006 that uh, this is the year that John Hopkins published a paper on the efficacy of psilocybin to occasion mystical type experiences. It wasn't until then that, you know, we had this resurgence of interest in research. And now, you know, 2023, uh, Colorado has legalized plant medicines, which we just hosted a, 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 the first kind of legal business mastermind event in Aspen in Colorado uh, this past weekend. Oregon legalized psilocybin. So now we're at a point in time where you know California may legalize it in the next month if Gavin Newsom, the governor, signs the bill that's on his desk to legalize mushrooms, ayahuasca, and wachuma. So we are quickly catapulting towards widespread accessibility. And I think the big question a lot of people have in their minds is, how is this going to go? Because we saw how this went before, it didn't go so well. So what are the parameters and regulations and structures and even lessons from the elders in the 60s that we can learn from to actually, you know, create a third wave of psychedelics that really helps to integrate these substances into our cultural framework? Yeah. Well, how did... 
media play a role in basically shifting the narrative to LSD being this like god awful thing where because, you know, you read about the consequences, like where did they get it wrong? And did they tend to glorify sort of, you know, exceptions to the norm when it came to this? Um, like, were they using outliers as examples or was it common enough that it became true? Because, yeah, I mean, I remember the Just Say No commercials and like, the, if I remember correctly, I read somewhere in some book that Just Say No was like basically so ineffective that it actually ended up increasing drug use. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. And, and I, I had a friend who told me when he sat in Just Say No, you know, his immediate reaction was like, shit, now I want to try all these things. Um, <laughs> because they were like, he was trying so to tell intrigued. you what to do. And it's, well, he and was so like, intrigued by, he was like, wait, these are going to make you feel, you know, like weird and good and like all this other stuff. So he was, I mean, he had done every drug under the sun by the time he got to college. Uh, but I, I think that, that that was kind of an interesting reaction. So like, and talking about the role of media in sort of, creating this negative narrative around psychedelics and and then we'll get into sort of the the performance enhancing benefits well look i mean media's job is to create attention and you know the media was covering a lot of the vietnam war and the protests that were going on and so naturally as part of covering the protests they were also starting to cover lsd and kind of how a lot of these hippies were using lsd and for I didn't live through the sixties and I, I don't, I don't know it well enough, but my, my senses are compared to people who live through it and historians of it. But my sense is the dominant narrative at that point in time was, um, not necessarily in alignment with what a lot, what a lot of the, the sort of these hippies wanted in terms of, you know, living in communes and, uh, you know, meditating and studying with gurus. It really was the counterculture. It really was more of a subculture and, What's happened now is we've come to realize sort of the wisdom that emerged in that era, right? We hadn't, we hadn't had, let's say, any practice with psychedelics for 1700 years as a culture, right? I mean, it, it, it's just, you got to like, you know, you got to walk before you can run. And I think we just try to run. And so a lot of the, what the media covered was sure it was, it was, um, you know, some very extreme stuff because that would generate the most attention. But by and large, I think there was a sense of this is quickly spiraling out of out of control. We're seeing and noticing more and more acid casualties. Um, was a heavy handed, you know, this wasn't just in the United States, by the way, that these drugs are banned. This is a global ban because the United States as a nation state has hegemony at this point in time and forces the entire United Nations to also adopt this charter. There were like seven countries that didn't, but for the most part, everyone did it. And so, um, I think the heavy-handed approach was not necessary. There definitely could have been a middle balance just to just say, make it illegal, don't touch it, right? I, it just, that was a poor, I would say, choice and decision that has negatively impacted, I would say, the last 40 or 50 years of our Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always think back to that Dave Chappelle joke when he talks about weed and he's like, people say weed is a gateway drug. It leads to other things. And he says, yeah, mostly junk food. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, let's talk uh, about the performance enhancing benefits of this, because, like, you know, we've had every performance expert here on the planet, like from Stephen Kotler to, you know, um, Michael Gervais, the sports performance. So, I mean, you alluded to the fact that, like, coaches are now integrating this into their practice. And I feel like that this is one of those things that has to be done responsibly with proper intention, because I've had two, maybe three or four psilocybin experiences. And I noticed there was one huge difference between the first one, which was really like this just amazing, mind-blowing experience where it was me and two friends on New Year's Eve during COVID. Um, and we knew we couldn't go out anywhere. So we said, okay, well, what if we did mushrooms? And it ended up being this like really, really beautiful thing. But then there was another time when it was just a random Saturday afternoon and we popped these chocolates and I was just like, okay, now I want this to end. Um, I'm actually not enjoying this. And I, I realized what it was. It wasn't intentional. But uh, so first, let's talk about, you know, one, the benefits, but give me the science behind the benefits. You alluded to things like addiction. So let's start with the the sort of negative ailments that it cures and then talk about the performance enhancements. So my my expertise is more in the betterment of the well, the, the wellness angles. But, okay. you know, I, I've hosted a, a podcast myself in the space for seven years. So I've I I. I, I know my way about the, the clinical. So, um, MDMA is on the verge of becoming available to treat PTSD. MAPS, uh, just in the past week, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, a nonprofit that's in the psychedelic landscape, they basically published the final results of their phase three trials, which shows basically 3x the efficacy of, of the currently available treatments. Uh, they expect the FDA to approve it to 
uh, reschedule MDMA, I believe, to a Schedule Three substance instead of a Schedule One substance, and make it available through clinics that uh, psychiatrists can prescribe for PTSD. Wow. Whether that will be covered by health insurance is TBD. Um, what is currently legally available is ketamine. Ketamine is covered by health insurance if it is the official pharmaceutical called Spravato that's made by Johnson & Johnson. Generic ketamine is not covered by health insurance because it's being used off-label and off-label typically isn't covered by insurance. So I think the biggest challenge right now or you know, thing to solve in this space is how do you get health insurance to cover what, it, what is a very different treatment than SSRIs? So pharmaceutical companies are actually participating in this now instead of fighting it. So the first major acquisition just happened two weeks ago where a Japanese pharmaceutical company acquired a psychedelic startup for $80 million. Wow. Um, just this past week, Stephen Cohen, who is a hedge fund billionaire, the, the movie Billions is based on his life. Um, you know, Stephen Cohen just bought 19 million shares of a company that I'm actually an advisor for called Cybin, C-Y-B-I-N. So there is a shift happening just in these last six months where big, big money is becoming very interested in this. They're seeing this as the future of mental health and they want to start to get on board. Um, with that being said, the, the model is so different from a mental health perspective that it's a completely new paradigm because to, to get into the science of this, the reason psychedelics help uh, at healing so much is because they allow us to confront, um, challenging emotions, traumatic stories, traumatic events. And by confronting them, by, so to say, looking the dragon in the eye, as Jung would say, you, you, you know, you get the gold. So by confronting the pain, by confronting the sorrow, by confronting, you know, the trauma, psychedelics create this open window where the amygdala, the fear response is dampened from the amygdala. Um, both hemispheres of the brain are communicating at a higher level. So there's a sense of playfulness that comes forward. People can essentially process very traumatic experiences and emotions, which is under, often underlies a lot of these clinical conditions. Now, PTSD is different than depression and MDMA and the way it impacts, you know, why it's so good for PTSD is different than why psilocybin is so good for depression. And the, the distinct difference is that psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in mushrooms, uh, often facilitates what is known as a mystical experience, this connection to divinity, to God, to source, to oneness, to something greater that is unexplainable and ineffable. And the efficacy of the clinical, um, the clinical treatment is the, the more powerful that mystical experience is, the more powerful the healing is, the longer it lasts, the more effective it is. So in other words, these, these researchers at Johns Hopkins showed this distinct relationship between um, spirituality and healing. Um, a lot of it coming down to the sense of, I would say, existential disconnection, a lack of purpose and meaning, um, disconnection from nature and the environment. And so that's proving to be a really effective healing modality for, um, for depression, addiction, specifically some anxiety, end of life anxiety in particular, because people realize that death is somewhat illusory, that you can see beyond the veil, that energy is just something that recycles. All these sort of like truisms and cliches people feel and experience oftentimes for the first time in their life. Whereas, so that's psilocybin. MDMA is a little bit different. MDMA just basically helps to keep the, the client stimulated. 
enough so they can process a very, very specific, difficult, and traumatic emotion that has caused post-traumatic stress, stress disorder. This is most commonly with women who have been sexually assaulted or raped or men who go to war. And so we're finding incredible efficacy with MDMA specifically to treat PTSD because it dampens the fear response even more on, in, in the amygdala. It, it really helps to downregulate it. So these very overwhelming um, memories can actually be brought up, processed, stored, forgiven, and that allows them for the healing. It's a catharsis more than anything. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the performance enhancing benefits of this because I remember the early days of, you know, ecstasy becoming pretty like popular. You know, this was like Berkeley in the late nineties when I was in college. And I still remember the, the friend that I was telling you earlier who thought just say no was bullshit was the one he was a freshman and I was a senior and he was the first one to introduce me to ecstasy. And I remember taking it, you know, waiting an hour as anybody who does for the first time. And I remember when it hit, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Like, you know, and you know, and I, I probably had a good year, but it was not healthy use by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Like I remember at a certain point, like I, I started having, you know, digestive issues and I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I got to stop this. Like I can't go on like this every weekend. And I, I saw kids who literally had been partying at raves every weekend from the time they were 14 and they looked like they were a mess. Yeah. Um, you know, so talk to me about how we go from that to now finding these, you know, performance enhancing benefits. And, and how do we, like I said, do this with intention and in a way that it doesn't lead to that, but instead to the positives that you've talked about in terms of more creativity, more productivity, more flow, like all the things that we're generally seeking as knowledge workers, creatives, and people who are building things. So I think this is, this is where like drug pharmacology comes, comes in, in to be useful and effective. And, and there's this interesting divide between natural and synthetic that's very particular to psychedelic substances. LSD kind of straddles both worlds, but MDMA and ketamine, which are the most commonly used synthetic psychedelics, um, can both be addictive. Um, there can be issues of neurotoxicity specifically with MDMA. Oftentimes when MDMA is pressed into pills, it is with other drugs. No, it's not pure molly, um, which is what they're using in clinical trials. And, and so I think there needs to be a lot of caution exercise specifically around ketamine and MDMA, um, that if they're used too often, especially in a set and setting that is recreational in a party environment, those, they can be more detrimental than helpful. Now, look, I've done molly and gone to a music festival. I've stored a line of K on the dance floor. I don't make it a habit. You know, it might happen. It's probably happened in my life maybe 10 times uh, to 15 times. Have, using MDMA, using ketamine more recreationally. A lot of it is like, especially with ketamine, because it's, it's, um, it's short. It's like an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah. I would, I used to do like ketitations where I would do deep meditations with ketamine at home, sort of as like a, a wellness routine just to help with some anxiety and stress. In fact, I went through Mindbloom. I went through Dylan's program early on in 2000 during COVID and had some of the most incredible experiences I've ever had with, with ketamine. So that I think the distinguishing factor is the drug pharmacology, right? There is, there are levels of neurotoxicity when, M- when MDMA is used too often. Uh, and same with ketamine. With psilocybin though, the active ingredient in mushrooms, you know, oftentimes people, um, will use these in recreational settings. They'll eat chocolate bars. They'll go to parties. 
a lot of people are now doing it instead of drinking alcohol, this whole, you know, Cali sober notion. Um, a lot of people, myself included, will and have microdose to help with cannabis addiction and using cannabis too much. So I do think there are uh, substantial benefits to these, to these lower doses done socially when compared to alcohol. And I'm talking specifically psilocybin, low doses of psilocybin mushrooms, these chocolate bars. Like I have a chocolate that I make that combines it with Kana, which is a natural heart opener from South Africa, theobromine, which is the active ingredient in cacao, lion's mane, and damiana, which is an aphrodisiac. And so it's like taking mushrooms and MDMA, but it's fully natural. There's no sort of downstream neurotoxic effects. So I think part of this as well is like as more and more herbs become available, psilocybin is a great amplifier. And so when there are going to be these incredibly synergistic herbal formulations that are put together and created that end up being actually way more effective than synthetics. And my hope is that we go in that direction. And a lot of the legal policy that's developing is going to be supportive of that direction, which I think is a very, uh, a very good thing. Well, talk to me about, uh, you know, we've kind of addressed the, the sort of negative, you know, issues that these things help, but talk to me about the performance enhancing benefits. Um, because this is something that, you know, I know Stephen Kotler and Jamie Will covered in Stealing Fire as well. Um, and this seems to be, you know, quite common, like that, you know, this is becoming more of the norm in Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, for people who are working in the tech industry, like what, what kinds of things does, does this lead to that are positive? Because you mentioned, you know, mind bloom. And like I said, we had Dylan here, and it made me kind of think, okay, I don't have any serious issues. So like, you know, if I was thinking about this from a standpoint of my own you know, work as a creator, as an entrepreneur, like what role does this play in enhancing performance in these different areas? So fun anecdote to start with in the, in the 1960s and seventies, there was this, you know, sort of dirt bag, extreme sport underground. They climb mountains. They, they would climb mountains and snowboard down them. Um, like an ex extreme sports really started to become a thing. And what was known as sort of the underground secret in those extreme sport environments was that they were all taking microdoses of, of LSD and mushrooms. Uh, and the writer James Oreck wrote about this, I think in 2011, sort of saying, you know, people would take 15, 20, 25 micrograms of, of LSD and they would go out, um, snowboarding and skiing. And they just noticed that they were more aware. Uh, they have better reaction times. Uh, they could easily access the state of flow um, to sort of have and be part of that that no mind. And that um, they did this quite often and it was well known that it helped. We also know that, that you know, I, I mentioned this as part of my historical story earlier that there was a lot of LSD that was done in Silicon Valley and Palo Alto uh, at Stanford and Berkeley, right? There's, there was a d distinct and direct relationship between the use of, of psychedelics and this computer revolution uh, because it helped to see things as interconnected. It helped to think of new systems and, and new paradigms. So with that as a historical reference, I, you know, we're starting to discover more and more about the um, performance aspects of psychedelics. I think low doses, microdoses are a better, like if the intention is performance, the low dose, the microdose is a better use unless there's a way in which, for example, as a leader, the way you communicate your, your ability or inability to be vulnerable 
Uh, if you're a writer and you felt stuck creatively for a long time, you feel depressed, you feel sort of whatever, like people go through phases in life. I think in those phases, higher doses of psychedelics can be a great sort of um, forcing mechanism to get you out of your typical kind of day-to-day or maybe out of a rut and really be re-inspired and re-energized to pursue something creatively. But once on that path, I find, you know, um, these, these lower doses in, com- in combination, you know, I love to go hiking. I play the violin, so I'll play music and every now and then I'll, I'll take low doses of LSE. It just helps with intonation. It helps with tonality. It helps with, uh, just a little bit more softness and, 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 and sort of finesse. And, and, and look, the, the other interesting thing that's going on outside of just the flow, the creativity, uh, the mood, uh, physiologically, psychedelics are anti-inflammatory agents. So a lot of chronic disease, um, a lot of physiological issues are related to too much inflammation because of all the seed oils we eat or because of the gluten that we eat or because of how much we work or because of you know how stressed out our lifestyles are. So there's been clinical research done that shows that psychedelics, um, the most common one being Wachuma San Pedro, which is a cacti, has incredible anti-inflammatory benefits on the gut and therefore the mind. Um, and so that, that impact on inf- inflammation physiologically, people will notice that, you know, they've had this chronic issue for five, 10, 15 years. They go and they sit with ayahuasca for a week or wachuma for a week and they notice it's cleared and it never comes back. So I think there's also these sort of, uh, really interesting outside the box. Like people have healed their shingles with microdosing. Right. Uh, women will find that they can re-regulate their menstruation if they've had off cycles or their cycles are too painful with microdosing. So there's a way in which, um, the impact on inflammation, uh, the impact on neuroplasticity, uh, when these are used with intention and responsibility, they can be helpful at a, at a range of things. And so any executive coach, health coach, uh, life relationship coach, they're going to benefit from being able to to work with these substances because the no, like then the number one prerogative of a coach is to help your client change, to help them shift, to help them let go, to help them you know transform, move on, whatever it is. And I have found no greater tool that does this more reliably and effectively and consistently than psychedelics. Um, and that's reflected in the scientific literature, and I, that's also reflected in this sort of abundance now of anecdotes of people like Aaron Rodgers, the NFL, you know, MVP saying ayahuasca was incredibly transformative for him or other folks like Brad Pitt saying how he microdoses or, you know, there's just a litany of stories now of folks who are at the absolute top of their game who say psychedelics have really helped me do X, Y, and Z, whatever that might be. Yeah, I remember in the Will Smith biography, he wrote about his own ayahuasca experiences as well. I Mark wrote that, right? Mark Manson, who... Mark, who yeah, Mark was the, I think, the ghostwriter. The ghostwriter, uh, which I still haven't read that book. And now that you bring it up, I'm like, all right. It's, you know, it's for, good. For, it's very good. Is it Because for me, books are always like, okay, if I hear about it from five people, that's when I buy it. You know, yeah. like, unless I just, you know, have my interest picked. Like right now I'm reading a biography on Ezra Pound. Um, who helped to discover T.S. Eliot and James Joyce and, you know, all these modernist writers. And I, I just, that's sort of off topic, but also very. Yeah, no, it, it's good. But he, he alluded to that as well. 
there's one thing I wonder, you know, I, I come from a long line of academics, my sister being a doctor. Where do you get pushback from the medical community on all of this? So the APA has basically come out and said, until these are approved by the FDA, we do not support the use of psychedelics. You know, like there needs to be more research and there needs to be more money poured into it. Um, so a lot of medical, the, the medical establishment definitely is anti-psychedelic at this point in time. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of medical doctors and medical professionals. You know, in our training program uh, for third wave, we have, you know, most of our faculty are licensed clinical professionals, MDs um, and doctors of Chinese medicine and, you know, clinical psychologists and psychiatrists. And um, all of them now are doing some level of performance you know, executive coaching, um, because they found the clinical and the medical model to be too regulated, to be sort of too, too old school, not able to adapt quick and fast enough. And they're just sort of, um, in a way over it because they've had their own experiences, whether psychedelic or otherwise. And they've come to realize that the medical establishment is, 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 you know, basically in the, the business of sick care rather than true, true healing and, and wellness. So, um, my sense is when MDMA becomes medically available next year and approved, that will significantly shift sort of the public, the public stance on it. Um, but we're not there yet. And so that, that remains to be seen. Give me some concrete examples of performance changes, whether it's, you know, more income, like, you know, greater levels of creativity, like give me some, some concrete things you've seen with people who have come to your programs and, and your retreats, like changes in their lives. One example is a CEO who was part of our training programs, did one of our, our coaching programs. He noticed that he was becoming burnt out he noticed that he was having to start to rely on SSRIs, um, that he was becoming depressed. And to help manage this burnout, he basically did a high dose of psilocybin followed by a once a week microdosing protocol. And so that psilocybin really helped to reset his nervous system. It really helped him to feel less burnt out. It was almost, you know, psilocybin can often be like, or and psychedelics can be like a, like a supercharge, right? Like, um, breath work, you know, they're like those little meditation, maybe they're like these e, those little EV chargers that you plug into. Yeah. But, uh, when you take a psychedelic, it can, it can often be like a supercharge. So, um, you get, you get, uh, re-energized really quickly which can help a lot of these CEOs and entrepreneurial types manage and deal with fatigue and burnout in a sort of a, a biohacking way. Uh, and then and then the microdosing on the tail end of that just allows for an integration of some of those lessons and learnings. And I think what's key to this, and I've experienced this myself as a CEO, I work with an executive coach. Um, I sometimes will take microdosing, microdoses of psychedelics like psilocybin before my executive coaching calls if I want to be more about brainstorming and ideas and creativity. Um, I would say the other way I've seen it transform someone's life, this is a one-on-one -on -one client that I worked with. She was making seven figures at Meta um, and had worked in the Sil Silicon Valley, I think, for 10 to 15 years. Had become very successful. Her husband was 
a very successful product engineer and developer. But she noticed in these corporate cultures, there's all this talk of consciousness and, you know, um, presence and depth, but like it's all talk. It's no action. Like most people in corporate culture are not necessarily walking the walk uh, of these things. And so that set her down a path of quitting her seven figure job, um, enrolling in the Berkeley executive coaching program, uh, working with me one on one. I helped to mentor and guide her for, for six months. And now she is, you know, actively coaching tech, uh, let's say middle managers and leaders in working with psychedelics through intentional intentional containers. And so the process and path that she went down of leaving corporate culture, coming into psychedelics, becoming an executive coach, she's now going to help you know, 10, 20, 50, 100, 150 other people also make that journey and transition using psychedelics as a catalyst for that. Because psychedelics in, in these transition moments, in these periods of uncertainty, they often help with courage. They often help with making the difficult decision that we know is difficult. We know it hurts, but we also know that by making that decision, our life is going to substantially improve for the better. We're going to be, we're going to make more money. We're going to be more happy and content. We're going to have better relationships. We know that, but like the, 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 the most beneficial decisions are often the most difficult decisions. And so psychedelics seem to help people with that process of making the difficult decision, having the courage to say yes and to go and explore something that may be uncertain. It's often it's often this liminal space, right? Like the metaphor that I use is we leave the island and we're out in the in the choppy seas and you know we're trying to find what's what's the new island. But those 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 in-between periods, those transition periods often allow for the greatest lessons and learnings, uh, even if they can be quite quite difficult and challenging. Yeah. So I have two final questions for you. Uh, you know, I've had so many conversations with people about what I like to now jokingly call the self-help industrial complex where, uh, <laughs> you know, I, we had uh, Wiley McGraw who described it as the self-help hell loop where people are just endlessly going to seminars and reading books. But, you know, they're trying to basically consume all this self-improvement content, but nothing actually improves in their lives. Right. And you know, just the throughout the course of our conversation, I couldn't help but think like, what is this going to do to the personal development industry? Like, what is the impact going to be of psychedelics? Like, is it going to be better? Like, am I going to be, get more out of going and doing an ayahuasca ceremony than I would sitting and listening to Tony Robbins rattle on for two days? Right. So it becomes less unidirectional. There's more sovereignty and autonomy that's created with it. People can actually make substantial change rather than just continuing to play the old story again and again. I mean, I think this is partly what drew these people into this mastermind program in Aspen that I just hosted last weekend. It's, you know, some, some people who have sold, you know, nine, nine figure companies, uh, some folks who are Inc. 5000 entrepreneurs, some folks who have, you know, helped to scale six different nine figure companies. So, and they, they were really wanting to come together to connect in a deeper level, to connect in nature. Right to work with psilocybin in a container that would allow for uh, discussion, that would allow for brainstorming, that would allow for creativity, because that sort of collective co-creating is much more interesting than just getting told what to do for for hours, if not months, if not years, on end. So there's a lot more participatory spirit that comes from that, and I think psychedelics, though can get like that as well. And I think that's also something to be aware of, right? Like 
for me, I was on a self-help kick from the age of like 19 to 24, which I feel like is not necessarily quote normal, but that's like, okay, on a self-help kick, that makes sense. I was reading Nietzsche. I was, you know, listening to a bunch of podcasts. I was like in a deep mode of absorption and learning. And then like at some point I was like, I'd rather read, I don't know, war and peace compared to, you know, how to make 22 more million dollars if you make, if you do this one simple trick better. Right. Um, so my, my taste just started to change. My perspective started to change, but I've always continued to work with psychedelics as an ally. Some people I know I've been working with, you know, ayahuasca for 22 years, 25 years, 30 years. Um, they're, they've gone to hundreds of ceremonies and they're not much different than when they started. <laughs> um, so I think that's also the thing to be mindful of is psychedelics can also help us to check out. They can help us to disassociate. They can help us to forget about things. It really comes down to the intention behind it. It really comes down to the, the sort of reverence and responsibility that that's brought to it. And I think it's also like the acknowledgement that some people are, are born into better situations than others. I know people who have been born into heroin experiences and a lot of early childhood trauma, and they've come so incredibly far, partly through psychedelics. And it's been a lot of hard work, but they've made that commitment. And there are other folks who are given a really, you know, clean slate and just don't ever do much with life for better or worse. So I think yeah. part of this is also getting out of the, the self-help, the navel gazing, right? And, and getting into how do I contribute to something greater than myself? How do I leave a lasting sort of impact or legacy? Um, the indigenous, indigenous people often talk about how, you know, what, let's leave this place, you know, in great shape for the next seven generations, right? How do we think about that? Like, what are we doing now, today, this week, this month, this year to, to, to steward the earth and the land for, for seven generations from now? And I think that mindset, rather than seven years from now in the VC sort of model of scaling a company, that, that mindset of a long-term orientation, I think will, 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 will really help to, um, manage some of this neurotic frenetic energy around i got to become something i got to do something i got to you know like we can we can last a little bit longer these days well um well this has been fantastic it's been really thought provoking and insightful as i expected it would be so i have one final question for you which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative what do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable the courage to confront the courage to um to commit and the courage to create. I think for me, it just comes down to, to courage. How, how, how much can you really say yes to the difficult things? How, how well can you look into, you know, the, the, the face of uncertainty and, uh, go forward with it anyway? Um, and, you know, how can you leave, uh, a legacy that you think will last for the next, seven generations how do you how do you just so dramatically positively impact the world around you through that that courage um uh that the world has to um become a better place to live for for others amazing um well i can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story your wisdom and your insights with listeners where can people find out more about you your work and everything else so the third wave is a great educational platform, the thethirdwave.co. We have guides in every psychedelic. We have a directory of clinics, retreats, therapists, and coaches. So if you want to find a vetted retreat center, a vetted clinic, 
a vetted coach or therapist to work with, just go to our website. And we also have a free community that folks can join uh, to start to connect with others who are also interested in, in psychedelics. And then if there are any practitioners, coaches, or those who are looking to become more professionally involved and how they might weave this in, that's our Psychedelic Coaching Institute, which is psychedeliccoaching.institute. There's details on the training program there. If you're an executive coach, holistic health coach, life relationship coach, or even a therapist practitioner who wants to expand, uh, that's a 10-month program with a six-day intensive in Costa Rica. And then I'm on social at Paul Austin 3W on Instagram and Twitter. And I post on Instagram every now and then. I tweet every now and then. Um, so if folks are listening to this and you have any questions or want to reach out, you know, I'm pretty responsive there. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.